Oh God. We just, maybe, maybe this is a week where we don't have one. <laughs> I'll just cut out that eight-minute chat we had about the N-word and use that as the cold open. Don't use this as the cold open. And don't use that as the cold <laughs> open. <laughs> Broadcasting live from Beef Station. Join us as we rocket through the stars at the speed of sound. I'm Oscar. I'm Andrew. Welcome aboard our movie podcast. Of course, every week we provide a spoiler-free review and then launch into a deeper discussion of the film we've picked. We might kick off with a bit of news and uh, <laughs> current events slash entertaining anecdotes before we <laughs> delve into our deep dive discussion of the film that we're doing this week, which for... This week is a Japanese film that came out in 2019 that we just went to see at the cinema called Weathering With You, written and directed by Makoto Shinkai. It's got a very similar style to the kind of anime, hand-drawn Japanese animated style that a lot of people might be familiar with. Yeah, we went to see it because we'd heard comparisons to this guy's films and the films of Hao Miyazaki, who of course did Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle... Princess Mononoke, amongst others. Studio Ghibli. Yeah, right. Studio Ghibli films. So they're often seen on the internet as I don't know. It's kind of in the way sort of Pixar films are, where it's not they're not they're not kids films, mm. but they're not adult films. They're sort of like beautiful films for everyone. Kid, yeah, yeah, kind of things. Yeah. Kid, kid friendly films that adults aren't going to get. Yeah bored by I've really liked the Miyazaki films that I've seen in fact I've really tried to track down more and it's been fucking impossible yeah it's very difficult so to find them this seemed like as good a substitute as any and we kind of weren't really sure what else we could watch in the cinema this week so we went to see this to a packed house actually I was surprised yeah it was like more than half full was. yeah which is surprising for a weird anime film but yeah there was also like I was surprised at the number of sessions it was like at least two sessions a day which that, is crazy because yeah, you would expect that it would be like four sessions overall and that'd be it yeah. yeah so yeah that is what we're up to later in the episode this week mm-hmm. but before we get into our review we might launch into a bit of news a bit of other stuff boy have you got anything before we launch too far into it before we get into the news yes yeah. I'm hitting the random button on Wikipedia <laughs> no. and it's come up with the Phoenix Trotting Park <laughs> Okay, so is this... This has been hit after hit, I gotta say. <laughs> is this in Phoenix? Yes, it okay. is a... It was... Ooh, drama. It ooh. was a horse racing track built in 1964 in Goodyear, Arizona. Do you build a horse racing track? I suppose you do. I suppose you build the fences. <laughs> no, a horse racing track much like the universe always was. I think you define a <laughs> horse racing track. <laughs> it opened in 65 and was run for about two and a half seasons. The large futuristically designed structure gave an optimistic look for the 1960s. <laughs> it, was just, it was just a big billboard that says climate change is false. <laughs> yeah, um, fuck yeah. That's not a horse racing track. That's a desert with a fucking grandstand in the middle uh, of you're it. You're just describing Arizona, mate. Oh. But <laughs> no, I would say that's reasonably futuristic. Originally yeah. planned to be built for a cost of $3 million, the facility ended up costing around $10 million. Fuck me! One of the proprietors of visionaries behind the park was James Dunnigan, the oh. renowned New York horse racing financier. Yeah. In, among the crowd of renowned New York horse racing financiers. Don't have to tell me who James Dunnigan is. Um, Various yeah, no, incentives. I'm not done. Right. Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, I reckon I actually am done. Um, yeah. It's, uh, though closed in 1966, the 194-acre property had been continuously owned by either individuals or corporations and businesses. <laughs> and with the exception of... As a opposed to discontinuously owned for one, for one <laughs> moment, <laughs> dude shredded the title in and it was no man's land for a few years. <laughs> 
Saul just came out and played soccer in the middle of the trotting field and yeah, they went back to shooting right. each other. <laughs> yeah. They were Germans for whatever. <laughs> yeah. The main building of the park was used in the nineteen ninety eight Charlie slash Martin Sheen movie No Code of Conduct. Part of ah. the feature involved a large explosion occurring at the track. In December two thousand fifteen, the property was put on the market for sixteen point five million. Fuck. And the structure was demolished in twenty seventeen. What? So there you go. It's gone now. Who bought it? Who bought a fucking grandstand in the middle of a fucking desert only to demolish it? Does does not say. R.I.P. Yeah. Jeez. There you go. The Phoenix Trotting Park. That was quite good. Yeah. Well, I actually, you know what? For 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 a for a, for a, a grandstand, a pavilion. Yep. Rather impressed by the architecture right. there. Yeah. It's quite good. I would Looks say it's like one of them. One of the more futuristic trotting parks I've laid <laughs> eyes right. on in Phoenix. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's well, do the news. Let's hope that much like the Phoenix, it too will rise from the ashes from whence it came. Very good. We'll have, be able to broadcast the 100th Beef Station episode from Phoenix Trotting well, Park. That's, that's, in like <laughs> <laughs> that's in like less than a year, bro. I don't know if we're going to be able to swing that one. <laughs> we're going to have to crowdfund $8 million, bro. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Just gonna, probably going to have to steal $8 million, to be honest. Uh, crowdfund our bank heist. Yeah, fuck yeah. BSB 832-297, account number... Crowdfunding a bank heist is an interesting idea. <laughs> Could I give out my actual bank details on the air? I think it's dumb to do that. But, like, what can they do but give me money? I think, on principle, the only thing people can do is give you money. But I think it's pieces that can be used for identity fraud. Really? Yeah, because I think if they're, like... Oh. If, if you convincingly call up and you're really charismatic and it's just some schmuck bank teller on the phone and you're, like... I've I've forgotten everything just about give me the money. I just I know the numbers. Yeah. No, that's not true. That can't probably, be true. Probably, probably not. Maybe your, it would have worked like ten years ago. What's your BSB, bro? I am not saying. <laughs> oh, my BSB. Oh, yeah. It's one one two nine zero eight. I'm oh. with St George. Cool. Yeah. Fifty episodes from now, I'm going to ask your account number. Why the fuck. fuck do I know that? <laughs> do you know your BSB off by heart? No. Fuck me. I I need to rethink a fair few things. That's just I, that's that's shocked me. I reckon if I had to guess, I'd say it's eight three two. No, I think it's eight six two nine zero three. Let's have a look and see if I'm right. All right, interesting. Eight six two nine zero three. Now, if you had if you if you had to give a digit, you were least certain about it's the six. It's the six. Yeah. Okay. Because you did something hesitate. Two, you stumbled. Well, because I thought originally it was eight three two nine zero three, but I thought you no, know, if I had a repeated digit like that, it is. An observed phenomenon in psychology that your first guess was most likely to be right. <gasps> it's six. It was six two nine zero three. Great. I was wrong about the eight. Oh shit! It's zero six two nine zero three. No, you idiot. Yeah, a zero is like two eights stacked on top of each other. That's, so that must have confused me. I'll tell you what, though. I think that's a. It's actually not. An eight is two zeros stacked on top of each <laughs> other. <laughs> Can we leave our BSBs in? Are we morons? Is this fine? A BSB is fine. That's just what bank you deal with. I think that bank doesn't exist anymore. Because it got demolished when they redid the um, the uni. No, it's not a branch bank. It is. Is it? Yeah, that's what the BSB stands for. It's like oh. the branch number where your account was made. I thought that was the just the bank's number. No, like international like, banking. Because I have t- I have two different um, accounts with the bank I'm with. And you have, have two different BSBs. Um, actually, no. But yeah. I know I'm right. Are you sure you're right? Because yeah. I feel like it's just the bank. Anyway, yeah. there's no way to clear. Listeners, this up. we'll take a break. BSB code is a six-digit number used to identify the individual branch of an Australian financial institution. There you go. We're well, back. I kind of like that. I got a, you know, I got, a, I got a, 
I got a shiny rare BSB. <laughs> yeah, an extinct BSB now. <laughs> All right, news. <sighs> Fuck. That's all, yeah, that was it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the news is that they demolished that bank. <laughs> no, I mean, like... <laughs> Listeners, if the bit that we just recorded has been left in, I do not regret wasting <laughs> then, our time for a second. Then you know that then, then the, the rest of the episode is clearly <laughs> floundering. <laughs> Because that is the cream that has floated to the top uh, of the crop. We did an anime. Uh, we, we guessed each other's BSBs. <laughs> Talked about fucking horse racing. Jesus. Yep. Good shit. Yep. All right. Um, Which, for the record, I'm against. Ready? Building horse racing parks <laughs> in, yeah, in, in Phoenix, Arizona. Let's stop this podcast and go build a fucking horse racing park. Are you ready for no. that? No. <laughs> I've just clearly articulated my position on that. <laughs> Wait, is it in Arizona? <laughs> No? Oh, then that's fine. Are you ready? The yes. orchestra's been waiting. Oh, shit. Yeah, I forgot I have to do 50% of this work. Yeah, well, oh. That's really not It's 25% <laughs> of work at <laughs> most. That. You're being very generous. Thank you. <laughs> I want the composition credit. Yeah, you can have a lot of the credit. You better not Lennon McCartney this, you motherfucker. <laughs> I wrote this. Yeah. You're just a studio musician. You'll end up being Harrison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ready? Yeah. <laughs> Beef Bulletin. Mm. Uh, big news this week. Uh, the teaser trailer and first little details have been dropped for the brand new Breaking Bad movie. I saw this. It's going to be coming out really soon, actually, on Netflix. The Breaking Bad movie that's going to be called El Camino is coming out on October the 11th. I see what you've done Netflix. there is you've mistakenly given us the release date for a Black Keys album that was released around the ah, shit. mid-2010s, I think. What if that's it? And you just log into Netflix and they just play you like, uh, <laughs> I'm a lonely boy. Oh, fuck. That's that like song goes, isn't it? I don't know what if that. No, that's, no, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that was close. That Stop was close playing the music through the audio recorder and get on with the news. <laughs> um, it's gonna it's gonna be all about Jesse Pinkman and where he what happened to him after the events of Breaking Bad. It sounds like yep. the teaser trailer. I didn't realize the um, the guy that's being interrogated in like the police station is Skinny Pete from the show. Yeah, I yeah I I'm a little worried about it because I Skinny Pete was really well acted in the series and I was really unconvinced by his performance in the trailer. It just felt really uh, off. So I, I'm a little worried about it. It's like a 45 second teaser trailer. I th- I'm sure it'll be... It's, yeah. it's all still written and directed by Vince Gilligan, I think. So like, Which is a huge sign, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> a huge sign for sure. Um, I'm really excited for this. Of we don't, good. <laughs> we apparently don't know whether we're going to get any of the other cast of Breaking Bad back, so we're not really sure about Brian Cranston or Bob Odenkirk or any of those. But Aaron Paul was so good. And crazy that, actually, I, have you ever heard this? Maybe it's like a common fact for people that are into Breaking Bad. Mm. But um, Aaron Paul was supposed to be a minor character in the Jesse Pinkman role that died off after like episode two. Very early on, they realized that the chemistry between these two characters was so good. That they couldn't that they, get rid of them. Change the course of season one. That's sick. Um, yeah, to keep it as they're like the com the the two main characters. I didn't actually know about that. Yeah, or maybe I didn't. I forgot. So yeah, but no, yeah, the, he he was it was only supposed to be like a bit part. Yeah, and cool. he locked into. Well, not locked in. He's such a good actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Credit um, to him. Yeah. Fate had it happen. Uh, so Tim Roth, fam- uh, longtime Quentin Tarantino collaborator, 
was a famous star of the <laughs> Once Upon a Time in yeah, Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, right. So he was apparently in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and his whole bit was cut. <laughs> apparently, that there was there existed like a three-hour cut of that movie. Uh, the editors I was reading about this today. The editors' initial cut was four hours and thirty Fuck. minutes. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure lots of movies are really long before they cut it Probably, down. But yeah. like, <laughs> but that is that's long even for an editor being like, "Here you go, Quentin. Yeah. And I hope <laughs> you've got half a day." Yeah, jeez. And I think I think this is a good time for us to for me to get back into it. I think I I listened back to the episode we did last week when I was editing it and realized that it sounded like we were fawning over it a lot. And in between that episode coming out and this episode that we're recording Austin's now... Austin's decided he hates it. <laughs> yeah. I just... I listened to a few other reviews that were like, oh, that's a good point. And like, that is that is a, that is one of the reasons why I felt flat coming out of the movie initially. There are a lot of scenes that didn't feel not necessarily boring, but felt like they kind of really weren't going anywhere and were building up suspense that didn't happen and fizzled out and I think right. that's sort of why I said like oh I wanted to go back and watch it again knowing that they don't go anywhere but it still doesn't change the fact that like maybe if I go back and watch it again or maybe even just justifying the first time I watched it there were loads of scenes where that were sort of built up and then fizzled out yeah and the only reason they were building up because I thought they were, they were going to go somewhere that they didn't. Um, yeah, I think it did me a service to like barely have any expectations about what the movie was going to do or be because it really yeah. it meant that I didn't. Uh, you I, you didn't I, have I, I trusted that it was whatever tension it was trying or not trying to build was going to be paid off or not paid off, and I didn't get frustrated about that. <laughs> so I think I was uh, pretty lucky, because I think a lot of people are expressing the sentiment you're expressing. And yeah. I seemed to... Um, maybe I'm just a lot more trusting when it's a director that I like, so I'm like, nah, they're doing the right thing, they're doing good suppose, things, they're doing good stuff, so, yeah. I like this shit. A lot more forgiving or whatever. Uh, yeah, exactly. I suppose my point is, there are a lot of I, scenes... I agree. In, yeah. There are a lot of scenes in there that don't necessarily seem very necessary. Absolutely. And it's sort of long, drawn-out filler-type scenes, which is a long way of saying that it's come out what Tim Roth's character was that got cut. <laughs> this he is my was Jay Sebring's British butler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Jay Sebring, the ca- a character who is like the friend of the friend of Sharon Tate that's in the movie for all of forty five seconds, yeah. had a whole extra scene interacting with his what his help. Yeah. <laughs> My did you see that? Um, so you know the Chevrolet Impala that um, uh, Brad Pitt's character drives, not an Impala, sorry, but the the one that he picks up the, the chicken Chevy, with yeah. the feet. And it's that. not a. It's not a. Yes. Yeah, Whichever sure. vintage car he drives, sure. that's Michael Madsen's actual car in real life. And it's oh, the wow. same car as in Reservoir Dogs that has the cop in the boot. Literally the same car. So he's been his car for ages? It has vastly more screen time than Michael Madsen does in this film. <laughs> and apparently the only reason Michael Madsen's in this film is because he complained to Quentin Tarantino that he's never been in a Tarantino film where his character hasn't died. So this is the first <laughs> film... That Michael Madsen is in of Tarantino's, where his character doesn't die. Who does he play again? <laughs> he's the guy that cuts off the guy's ear in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Who does he play in Once Upon a Time? Oh, I actually do- I don't remember. It's basically uh, <laughs> it's basically a cameo. No, I remember recognizing him, but um, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> he's the guy so, who cuts off the ear. In if you're not super dogs. familiar with Tarantino, but you've seen some of his shit, yeah, he was also the right. But the within guy the context that, like that a, we were talking about him, oh, you got I don't remember. No, I don't remember who he was in the film, but I remember reading that fact. It's That's an entertaining fine. fact, irrespective of his character. <laughs> Next headline I've got here is from Screen Rant. No. Uh, so the next headline I've got here is... Screen kind of Rant, can I have a job with you? <laughs> is related to the Spider-Man news that we sort of had last week oh about yeah. Great. Spider-Man and Marvel 
uh, not really being affiliated anymore. And I suppose that everyone sort of thought that that was... On the surface, that sounds like it's like, no more Spider-Man movies ever. Yeah. We're going to burn no. Spider-Man to the ground and shoot his uncle again. Yeah. Um, Sony no, can keep it, making movies. Yeah, right. And so the, the news out this week is that there was some sort of big D23 uh, festival or movie expo recently. I don't actually know what it is, but I've seen heaps of news that's been tagged D23. And Tom Holland had appeared at that and as part of the publicity for that, I think he was talking about the future of the MCU and Spider-Man. And he says he's going to continue playing Spider-Man. So I suppose Sony's going to keep making Spider-Man movies and they're going to make it with him in it. So I would love to then know... Um, what kind of bearing it's going to have? Oh, I'd love to see what kind of bearing that then has on the final product of the next movie that comes out. Yeah. As to whether it's going to... Because I think those first Spider-Man movies that came out with Tom Holland in them were really good. And I don't really know how much of the studio how much the studio has control in the specific creative direction, whether it was just the people that worked on the Andrew Garfield ones was shit mm. and the people that worked on these are good or whether Marvel has some sort of uh, better creative direction in terms of picking the right casting agents that pick the right but whatever but I think the, the, the Tom Holland ones have been a lot better than the Andrew I think Garfield Sony ones. will be fine yeah no but, but my point is the Sony ones that they did were shit so I don't know oh they, right the, the Andrew Garfield ones were Sony ones and they were terrible um, and I don't know whether that was just because the, po- the lot of people on those were terrible or whether it's like a Sony hasn't been able to make good Spider-Man movies yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah. So I suppose they did the original uh, Tobey Maguire ones well I'll be honest I don't care. Yeah, right. No, I don't know. <laughs> I just think it's interesting because if it's the same people working on it now, it's literally just like whose studio logo yeah. is on the front. And I would love to then see, it's the same actor working for two different studios. Right. I'd love to then see how much of an impact that And has. I assume like individual studios will have partnerships with certain directors and preferences for right, producers exactly. and VFX I mean. studios and stuff. Right. So, yeah. Okay. I don't know. But I think it was the storyline and the acting that really differentiated the Andrew Garfield ones, right? Which is not well, no, not necessarily studio dependent. I don't, I don't yeah, I don't really know that much. Okay. I mean, I just I'd no, love to, it. I. was the whole vibe of the whole movie was different. Yeah. And so, like, I would I would love to see the new Tom Holland movie tomorrow and see what the difference is. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, it'll be interesting for people who see it. Yeah. And good um, on you all. <laughs> Did, Did you see the uh, in, uh, interview that Jeff Goldblum gave on this topic? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't tell whether he was taking the piss or not. <laughs> he was like, it looks like he was like faking sarcastically, being really, really interested in it. It's Forty-five seconds of him being like, "What? Wow. No, no. <laughs> it's the first I've heard of it." <laughs> <laughs> He's such a gentleman. The it's great, great man. Um, I don't know if we talked about this last week, but the uh, trailer for the new, <laughs> the trailer for the new uh, Star Wars Boba Fett. TV series dropped during the week. Oh, yeah. It's like super high production value as well, man. So it's called The Mandalorian, and it's not actually about Boba Fett. It's about some bounty hunter, but I guess Boba Fett and Jango Fett were both races of this these people. New Zealand. And, Mandal- yeah. <laughs> and they were Mandalorians. Right. And so this is just about some other Mandalorian bounty hunter. It just it looks like Boba Fett, but it's not Boba Fett okay. for the purposes of, I don't know, story, universe consistency? I don't know. Sure. But the point is, the trailer dropped this week, and the production value looks like the production value of one of the movies, man. Yeah, it's yeah, fucking yeah. great. Yeah, it'll cost so like if, $15 million oh, an episode. Man, so if they haven't just cut the two minutes of high production value shots and the rest of it's like in a windowless basement. <laughs> the rest three of the show set in a windowless <laughs> basement. Yeah. Yeah, great. And like, oh, this is uh, Django, uh, 
Jingo Fett, and I'm filming this on my, my GoPro. <laughs> you can hear it, like, <laughs> pressing the buttons and stuff. Sorry. They write some sort of, like, in-world reason why the rest of it looks like dog shit. Yeah, great. <laughs> so I have to stay in this windowless basement. <laughs> Which is uh, ostensibly the cabin of my spaceship. And he's he's yeah. more like a computer hacker than yeah. anything else. And it all just happens on screen. Slave one, more like, get out of my room, mom. <laughs> um, and uh, the final bit of news we have this week is that during this D23 expo conference thing, they released some new images from the new Star Wars movie, Rise of Skywalker, oh, yeah. um, in which we see Rey's lightsaber, or at least a lightsaber that she's holding in the trailer. And it's a, it's a red lightsaber. <gasps> and it's a That's double the bad color, dude. <laughs> It's a double-ended red lightsaber, but not like Darth Maul. It's like two lightsabers have been gaffer Gaffer taped together together. (laughs) facing the same way. Yeah. So you can cut the same thing twice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Absolutely defeating the purpose (laughs) of the first lightsaber. (laughs) Um, Have you seen the new poster for Rise of Skywalker? Let's show me. (laughs) <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> Look at this shit, man. This is the real poster. Now, what I have to emphasize enough is that the picture in the background of the Emperor is not supposed to look like it was lifted from a PS1 game, okay? Um, okay, that's made me quite excited. Look at that! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a first draft from a Pixar movie. Yeah. That's supposed to be the Emperor. It I reminds assume. me a lot of like the Star Wars, uh, the art for the video game. The yeah, fo- the Force Awakens. It looks, or it looks like a lift from the Clone Wars. It certainly doesn't look real. Yeah, it's cartoony garbage. <laughs> it looks fucking awful. That's that's absolutely legit. <laughs> yeah. Are you seriously? Okay. Yeah. Wow, they fucked it. <laughs> uh, it this, looks so bad. If anything, this makes me way more excited for the movie. He looks like a PS2 character, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scrolling through the comments. There's just a bunch of people being like, "Is this, <laughs> is this fan made?" <laughs> it looks terrible. <laughs> yeah, shit. absolutely awful. Well, I look forward to that series slowly dying, <laughs> collapsing under its own weight, and no longer being able to draw air into its. Oh oxygen. my tanks! God, awful. All right. Well, is, is it about time for us to launch into our? Main event for the week? Yeah, I mean, usually we would do beefness or pleasure here, but... Usually we do what, sorry? (laughs) Sorry. Usually we would do beefness or pleasure here, Uh, (laughs) but I think um, the... The two fuckwits that normally do that have emigrated back to Russia, so... uh, I've got a little bit. Do you? Okay, well, I'll start off. I've been watching... Yeah, nothing three seconds ago. No, I, I fuck I've, me. I have nothing new, but I've been watching Burning as a, a Burning Korean film, twenty eighteen. Yeah, uh, I've been watching. I just it. want you to know I cut the fifteen minutes you talked about Burning out of last I, week's I, episode. I promise. I'll, I promise. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> I've been I've been watching that movie again as a study of what it does well filmically, and right. it's very, very, very good. Actually, I, I guess you found this interesting. The listeners probably found this interesting because <laughs> I mentioned this to you off mic, and you yeah. said, "Oh, I'm going to notice that now in every single film." There's this thing called the rule of threes for when you're conducting uh, interview style filming or dialogue scenes. Just two people talking together in the same yeah, or, or even one person talking to an interviewer yeah um where or even more like interview style stuff which <laughs> no like a documentary interview yeah. where they never show the other person you know what i mean sure um 
where you're supposed to not stick on the same camera angle the whole time because it looks weird. You're actually supposed to change camera angles, preferably three different camera angles, right? And that's obviously a pretty not stringent rule, so you can do two or one if you really want to like lock it down. But um, in general, it you should be if you're not thinking about it, it should be three. And burning does this thing where it changes camera angle when it wants to change the direction or tone of the conversation that's happening, which is really clever because it means like, you know how you do that thing where like someone says something interesting and all of a sudden you'll lean in and be like, whoa, 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 hang on. Like before I wasn't really paying attention. Now I'm paying attention. What are you talking about? It will like close in the camera angle to like a close up when a character starts paying attention. So it's using like even a base level filmic convention of like what he's expected to do anyway to make it a a possible attempt at a film yeah and he's using that to get more more like Like artistic shit in there he's using the actual like techniques of the film to echo the story as it's being told which is very very impressive and you have to think a shitload about it that's really cool it reminds me of I think I mentioned on the pod a few weeks ago about the um, this Edgar Wright video I say I watched about like how he gets jokes in everything including like he's like right I'm gonna have to cut Anyway, how do I make it? Was, we were talking about Midsummer, yeah. It was like, yeah. how do I make this cut also a joke? Yeah. And the same was like Midsummer, where he was like, I'm going to have to have a scene transition here anyway. How do I make this two weeks flash forward scene transition also a really cool shot? Right. In the same way, I suppose it's like, yeah, I'm going to have to have a couple different shots of this conversation anyway. How do I make this really interesting? Yeah, and it's shit like, it's, it's stuff that you wouldn't even really think about, but it just makes the shots feel right. Like at one point, the main character is standing in a house looking up at photos that are high up on the wall and then the camera cuts from him looking at the photos to the photos themselves and that it's like it shows you the bottom of the photo frame but it cuts off the top of the photo frame and it gives you this it like reinforces that it's him looking from the ground upwards it's like really clever stuff like that where it's like if I had to film that I'd probably just film the whole photo frame but they've chosen to cut it off because it gives you the sensation that you're where he is the sort of stuff that like it seems so obvious that you wouldn't even think about it until someone points out and you're like yeah it's obvious wait no that was a conscious choice right because at some point one person had to decide where to point the camera and thought it would look better if we did it this way and here's why yeah like they're doing a shot reverse shot of this conversation that's happening between Jong Soo and Hae the two main, I suppose, yeah. main-ish characters in the film. And jong Su is sort of the protagonist, I guess. Uh-huh. And, like, it moves when he moves, but it doesn't move when Hey Me moves. And it makes you feel much more like you're in jong Su's perspective. Like, the camera is kind of locked on him, but he's looking at this other character. That's really cool. Yeah, it's interesting shit like that. So, that again, a movie is a masterpiece. The more I watch it, the more I like it. Cool. Fucking brilliant. Everyone I look watch, forward to hearing about it. Every for week the next for the next five years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're welcome in advance. Yeah. The bit of uh, beef no so pleasure uh, that I have this week, of course, the segment where <laughs> we talk about other shit we watched, <laughs> not just the thing that's in the description, is that I finally gone in on Fargo this week, oh, the TV series, yeah. which people have been talking about and been like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Oh, man, it's so good. It's really good. So I haven't actually properly seen the Coen Brothers movie, but it seems like you don't really need to worry about it. I haven't seen it either. I've watched all three series. Yeah, right. So it it seems like there are just like sly references to the movie. Like the, the you know, the supermarket king? There's a flashback where it shows him finding a briefcase in the snow with money in it. This is not a spoiler. It's like in the first couple of episodes. That's the briefcase from the movie. The whole movie is about that briefcase, I think. Oh, so the briefcase ends up there. And then he... Ah, okay, interesting. 
But and so like it's like one of the origin stories for one of the characters in this Fargo TV show is that he's the one that ends up finding this briefcase that I guess ended up buried in the snow at the end of the movie mm. Fargo, um, which is cool. Uh, but other than that, it's it, it's so as far as I can see, not having really seen the movie, that not really much, related. Yeah, um, it's unrelated completely but it's so cool it's it doesn't i feel like just saying it's a crime drama doesn't really do it justice because really so martin freeman is the main character in the first series and my understanding is that series two and series three kind of stand alone totally almost. separate you can yeah. watch each one in any order and it doesn't impact that's my understanding as well that they're sort of standalone martin freeman plays the main character in the first season and it's set up like way up north in Minnesota where they all have these funny fucking accents. What you think of as a Canadian accent is often a, a Minnesota super accent. Super hardcore Canadian yeah. accent is what it sounds like. Oakley dorkley. Yeah, he's pushing through the snow. Oh, yeah. um, and he, Martin Freeman does it really well. Basically, it's about this normal, regular-ass, boring insurance salesman dude that accidentally falls into this like hardcore-ass crime on the lamb shit um, and every episode much like a Colmer's movie just gets crazier and crazier and shit just goes more and more wrong to the point where it becomes like comically unbelievable and you sort of get swept up in the whole ride or yeah. I'm, I'm only sort of a f- two or three episodes in but I've had a great old time so far but the other interesting thing that they do is like what in the same way that it's interesting to watch Walter White in Breaking Bad yeah. it's interesting to watch this Martin guy. Freeman's character in this show. This like normal guy turned into the a fucked up hardcore oh, criminal. Oh man, just I, that hasn't happened so much for me so far yet. But I imagine it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. Yeah, it's just about the choices that he's faced with, and like what yeah. it 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 definitely poses it in a have a think about what you would do in this situation. Right now, we're going to look at what this guy does. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, in the same way as like a Tarantino World War Two film was like a comical, not really slapstick, but kind of like ridiculous. Exciting, hyperbole, yeah. hyperbolic depiction of those events. This is like a ridiculous, fun, kind of slapstick, hyperbolic version of a crime mm. drama. Uh, and I'm having a great old time watching it. So I think if it's not normally your thing, I would still say go in on it. It's a bit of fun. It's not just like grim Scandinavian oh, bullshit. One of the best television shows. I'm having a great old time. Full I, stop. I just never bothered to go in on it. It's really I I good. Dismissed it. It's on Netflix, um, right? Still? The most recent season, I think, has just gone up, which is why it's popped up to the top of my feed again. Uh, no, that's been up for ages. Okay, right, whatever. Um, There's three seasons, it also and they're all me, fucking great. Have you ever heard of Kumiko the Treasure Hunter? No. It's this weird fucking like art house um, drama written written and directed by this American dude that came out in 2014. We went to see. I went to see it with friend of the show Mary. I was like, this looks, oh, yeah. this looks weird, and it was so weird. It's a fictional drama movie about this Japanese chick. Kumiko. The movie is called Kumiko the Treasure Hunter. So the character Kumiko um, watches the movie Fargo and of course Fargo at the start says this is inspired by true events. This yeah, is a yeah, true yeah. story and it's obviously not. Yeah. Um, but she thinks it is. And so at the end of the movie when it shows you this big box of money getting buried in the snow, the movie is about her going to Fargo to go and get the box of money that's buried in the snow. <laughs> so fucking weird. But she's like got no money, so it's like her hitchhi- hitchhiking way up to Minnesota, and she doesn't speak English, so there's all this crazy shit that happens, and like, it's like a it's like a more artsy drama, more realistic version of a 
Coen Brothers movie. Jesus, it's really weird. So like weird shit goes wrong and there's misunderstandings and like it's like a, it's like a cross between a Coen Brothers movie and like a Lost in Translation. Kind it of must thing. be amazing if it got distributed. I saw it at Palace, and I think Palace yeah. was the just the picked it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like um, a film like that. It's got to have something going for it. Because if you like, imagine pitching that movie. <laughs> it's so <laughs> like, oh, man. Have you seen Fargo? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, we're done. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's very heavily reliant on you having seen that film. Yeah, exactly. But uh, it's so much fun, and it's. I definitely remember working. Except you like, haven't seen it. What? You haven't seen no, Fargo. I haven't, but right. No, it, 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 the, it sets you it up. You don't need to have. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be that would be ludicrous if it has if you hadn't seen that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but no, it set, it sets up like the chick watching the thing at the end of the right, movie, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, great old movie. Um, but mm. I, I like that there's a whole bunch of shit that exists out there that just relies on you having seen Fargo. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly, and, and I still haven't. The the movie I think is um, pretty pretty great and was like very influential. Yeah, I like the Coen I think it came out in like '87 or something like that. Oh, it's God. quite old. Um, but the TV series are much more recent. They're maybe produced by or maybe just related to the movie, but I don't know if they directly involve the Coen brothers. I think they're not directed by it anymore, by the by the pair, by the brothers. Yeah, I don't know. But they're extremely good. Really, really great. Um, the cinematography in them for television is incredible. I would say it's more. it's like a more... It's like the, the tone of the Coen brothers, but the quality of True Detective... Yeah, that's a good way of describing yeah. it. Yeah. So there's still a bit of a fun kind of aspect to it. I had a, I've, I've had a great time watching it. I haven't seen very much of it. There's not, there's not much more, more I can waffle on about other than to say if you've been sleeping on it, if you're looking for a good, fun new series to watch, I'm having a great old time. Also, the, the character of Molly is one of the best female characters I've ever seen. Oh, she's great. Yeah. yeah she's yeah. awesome. Such an amazing actor. Um, yeah. And a really cool character that gets a lot of like exploration and development across yeah, the series. No, it's again, extremely I'm cool. I'm having a great old time. Yeah. Um, that's about all I've got. Should we launch into the main event for the week then, boy? Yeah, let's do it. So, uh, this week we watched, as we mentioned at the top of the show, a... Nino Kuni Revenant Kingdom. <laughs> a Japanese film that came out this year in Australia in 2019 called Weathering With You. It's written and directed by Makoto Shinkai. And it's animated in the style of like traditional Janami- Japanese... <laughs> <laughs> Don't <laughs> Janime <laughs> um, It's animated in the style of traditional Japanese anime Sarah Paul Manto for that Janime <laughs> Very good Thanks bro It stars Fuck me That can't be right <laughs> On a whole I just glanced at the box office <laughs> That's his first time reading <laughs> Japanese names <laughs> Like, they're Jesus all, Christ! They're all, they're all squiggles. We've gotten uh, this one all wrong. <laughs> no, it, um, I glanced at the box office that's made, and it was like, oh yeah, ten <laughs> billion. Oh, ten billion yen. Ten no billion way. yen. <laughs> ten billion US dollars. Like every Japanese citizen has seen this movie twenty-eight times. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like fucking maybe, but yeah. Yeah, because his um his last movie, uh, <laughs> Shinkai's last movie, which is called Your Name, and is actually yeah. up on Netflix, is the highest grossing anime film of all time. Oh wow! I believe, and was like the third highest grossing film in Japan ever, including like so this any any well. Avengers movie or whatever. So yeah, this dude this dude kills it. Okay, right. Well, so. Let's start with a brief summary, I suppose. 
we won't. Well, I don't think there's many spoilers that we can even probably give. I think it's probably. I think we could probably discuss most of this movie without spoiling, without spoiling anything yeah, yeah, and yeah. still feel like we're giving you some good shit. Yeah, so I don't worry. So. But let's start with just for the sake of it. Let's give our little review up front of like, yeah. should you see this fucking movie? Right. Right. We'll give a brief brief synopsis first. Yes. It starts off with the main character. Whose good. name Always I'm going to need to look at. <laughs> Hokada? I'm going to guess Hokada. Yeah, that sounds pretty, 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 pretty Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that. <laughs> it's Hodaka. I was so Hodaka. close. Okay. So it starts off with the main character, Hodaka, who's a, a bit of a, like a runaway, right? He's like a, and he's like a 15 year old kid. He's catching a ferry over to Tokyo where yeah. he plans to try and like find a job and make his way. And while he's on this boat, uh, they get this weather warning uh, because the boat's approaching the storm and Tokyo has been like plagued by really heavy rainfall for like months straight now. It's uncharacteristically heavy yeah. rain. And so the there's this warning on the boat where they say, hey, we're about to pull into the storm. Fucking get down below deck. And he's like, hell yeah. And he runs straight up to the top of the deck, right? And he's watching the sky and there's like this strange uh, dome of water all of a sudden that the boat is under and he's looking up at this thing just wondrous and then all of a sudden the dome of water sort of like smashes down and it's a bit like a big wave hits the boat and so he gets almost washed off the deck and at the last second he gets his hand grabbed by this other dude, Keisuke, who saves his life and uh, they get to know each other and then the ferry arrives and they go their separate ways yeah. and Keisuke says, hey kid, if you ever need any help, here's my business card, call me. And yeah. Uh, Horika thinks I'm not going to do that. Yeah, Horika then proceeds to try and say he's just like 15 year old kid. Um, he's trying to get a job and sort of make his way in Tokyo, make his way in the big city. He quite quickly finds that it's very difficult for a 15 year old kid with no ID really to get a job anywhere, and so he ends up calling up this guy. He calls up Keisuke, who yep. I think is called Mr. K or K or whatever. There's some shortened uh, version of the name. Suga son. That's it, Suga, who turns out runs this like. Conspiracy theorist journalism like paranormal activity blog magazine. website thing yeah. and offers this kid a job doing odd jobs and sort of cleaning up around the office and then like going off and interviewing people and he basically just says like go out and find crazy shit interview people about weird shit yeah right yeah. and so like, it, like it's ghosts and stuff yeah so it's basically like there's a lot of like a montage of like the public like reading this like little blog thing. Um, they're like, oh my god, they're trying to find ghosts. These guys are crazy, um, kind of shit. And so the kid gets close, and the, a lot of the movie is like him buddying up with the kid, the, the people around the office here. Yep. The quick version is um, crazy weather in Tokyo. These people have heard that there are sunshine girls who are these magical girls who have some sort of link to the weather, um, and they can pray for sunshine. And so yeah. they are, and it's, everyone thinks it's as crazy as it is. And this guy, this this Mr. Su, Mr. Suga kind of guy, doesn't really believe in any of this shit. He's just trying to make money. So he's like, oh, go find this fucking sunshine girl bullshit. Yeah. Um, so they go and like talk to a psychic and she tells them all yeah, about right. it. And so the movie's kind of about that. They sort of, with mixed success, find people who think they can or can like pray for sunshine. And it's also kind of a coming of age film as well. Like, there's a lot of like teen romance type stuff. Yeah. In particular, there's this one girl called Hina. Hina, yeah. Who yeah, he meets and sort of 
um, ends up running around with and having a whole bunch of adventures with. Right, and that's that's basically the, the yeah. gist of the film. Is like it's like a and all the while this this rain sorry builds yeah. up in Tokyo. So that's the that's the complicating factor. Yeah, and so I suppose the rain is sort of partly maybe like this this pray for sunshine thing is partly maybe sort of like a reference to the Japanese religious kind of praying to all sorts of different gods for gods of good luck and good luck charm type stuff um i know that when i was i was there ages ago and they had lots of like this is a little charm that you can put in your luggage for good luck in travel and this yeah. is for good luck in studies and so there's like a a lot of japanese superstition and religious type stuff that this religious all the themes of these things yeah exactly kind of reminds me of there's a lot of uh, backstory that it gives about like uh, dragon spirits and sun spirits and rain spirits. Yeah, there's this like but uh, figure that's it's like it looks like a little ghost thing. Yeah, that they that is clearly strongly associated with this idea of this sunshine girl. Yeah, right. Um, but I think all in all, though, most interestingly, it's set in the modern day. Right, and it's mostly set amongst like a gritty, very realistically hand drawn, hand painted looking Tokyo. I'm gonna correct you there. Which this probably computer animated, but it looks. This artist is explicitly known for his uh, unbelievable, unparalleled use of digital animation techniques. Right. So okay. none of this movie is hand drawn. Okay. It looks like that same kind of anime style, though. So if that's not hand drawn, then sure. But like, whatever. It, it's that same kind of animation yeah. that you know from anime type stuff. If you're a fucking nerd. Yeah. If you're if you're um, shitty weeb <laughs> like me. If we talk about the animation so, for a second, well, I was just going to ask. So, what what would you say makes this movie unique? Which I think is a good question to ask for most of the movies that we do. Yeah. So, what separates this movie out? Well, right? I th- I think uh, I mean for a start, obviously, it's a Japanese animated film that I haven't seen very many of outside. I haven't seen any of those outside of the limited number of Miyazaki films that I've seen. Right. But immediately, if you think like, oh, it's animated like a Japanese anime type thing, you think of very simplistic backgrounds. Um, the characters might be moving because I think a lot of the mo- stuff that I've seen is animated like that is like TV shows where right. often it's on a lower budget and so you get like a static, simple background with characters that move. In the- but a lot of the animation in this is very detailed, like super detailed. Yeah. I was lucky enough to be able to be in Tokyo a couple of years ago for about a week. All right, um, <laughs> and this film, even though it's like it's not realistically animated at all, like it's very stylistically animated, but the way it's drawn is still so detailed and so realistic in the details it captures of all the gritty griminess of the city and all the sort of faded uh, writing and posters and signs and billboards and people everywhere. It just... All the tiny little details are so impressive in this film. Yeah, so this artist is particularly, and this director, is known for his his use of like extremely detailed uh, backgrounds, basically. So if you think about the way that an animated film is made, right? It's just amazing. They start with a blank page. Yeah, it's just, and it's a it's series crazy. of moving pictures, right? And so each picture needs to be different from the last picture. But you can save money if you copy the last picture over to the next picture when copy you're animating. Copy the background right? and just change the character. Copy whatever's not yeah. going to move, yeah? yeah? Keep the things the same that are staying the same, which means that movement in an anime is the most expensive part of it, yeah? yeah? So that's why when you watch this type of shit, a lot of the moving parts are the more simple parts because whatever needs to move needs to have the least yeah. complexity. Big static backgrounds. Right, with simple characters. Yeah. So this dude, Shinkai, made a name for himself from like 2001 onwards by just being the unparalleled fucking master of using computers <laughs> to generate the most beautiful 
background art for uh, anime, for video games, and for a bunch of other shit. Yeah, um, and and this is and that's exactly what this is. It's incredible. Like even just like. Um, cityscapes where it'll show like a grimy alley with trash on the ground and then like air conditioners poking out of every window and a network of tangled cables and stuff. Even that you're like, starting from a blank slate, how do you get the idea to draw all of that from nothing? It's just incredible. Interestingly enough, so this, this, because he leverages digital technique, exactly. So this film, I believe, I think this is the way that it's made. I watched a bunch of interviews, but it's hard to know when you're going in from like with no expertise. I'm pretty sure this film has a registered photographer, like a background photographer. Yeah, right. And so I they go surprised. in with a bunch of photos and what they do is they sort of like rotoscoping is the technique of like drawing on top of already existing Real photos, photos or, yeah. or film. And I'm pretty sure that like either they use photos as direct inspiration or they rotoscope and add a bunch of shit. But yeah. I think it's more the former. Well, I think yeah, they I, use it as inspiration. I wouldn't be surprised either way because yeah, so much of this shit, like it'll be like an app... They, animated the scene and there's a poster on the wall and there's so much detail in the poster and it'll have grime and moisture yep. and like reflections and shit off of the poster and off of the water on the concrete on the ground. And, and that's another so part of this movie, right? Oh, it's crazy. So uh, I think two things in this movie really, really impressed me about it yeah. is the background art is the most detailed I've ever seen. And I know that Shinkai has defined himself by... Through through that, What's so the, he I'd, says. I'd never heard of him, and it was the first film of his I'd ever seen. So I, I, I watched really a pretty impressed. good interview where this person distilled the two great names in like this this type of media at the moment: um, Miyazaki and Shinkai. Sure. So how uh, Miyazaki is the Studio Ghibli dude, and yeah. they said Miyazaki has always been an expert of making characters move in a way that reflects their mood and their emotional state. Yeah. Right. So they're. For instance, Howl's Moving Castle, the wizard Howl, he moves when he's excited and he's up and he's doing heaps of shit. He moves in this really like jerky way. His clothes like sweep out behind him. His hair sort of has this life of its own. And then at one point in the film, he's like in a super depressive state and he moves in a way that's almost like a liquid. Like he sort of oozes around and it's really clear and it's a really compelling way of reflecting how this character looks. It's not realistic and so it's so creative and interesting and engaging in the way in which the characters are And it's leveraging the animated medium really cleverly because it's just not a way that you could make people move if you were actually filming them, right? But uh, Shinkai, the director of Weathering With You, uses uh, the way that his characters interact with the surrounding world instead of that type of movement. So his films have historically had really like kind of static, not static necessarily, but very rigid, unmoving characters. But the character's emotional state has been reflected in the background art. That's right? something I really noticed. So yeah. like in the opening sections of the film where this kid is basically homeless and he's looking for a place to live and he's looking for a job. Um, it's like dark, wet streets. Gloomy, he's sleeping cold. on the streets, mounted the piles of trash. Mostly um, neon lit. Yeah. Something I really noticed is because I was sort of thinking about the idea that all this, a lot of the backgrounds are so realistic that, yeah, they were probably traced from photos or they were copying photos. At least inspired by, yeah. Yeah, and like a lot of that, and something else I thought really interesting that you pointed out in the cinema was just the idea that they were animating a lot of camera and photographic artifacts. Yeah, like at one point, I noticed that the camera, quote, camera, quote, pans upwards and the, the outer edges of the frame 
curved in a way that reflected a wide angle yeah, lens, like but obviously it's they'd, uh, yeah, exactly. completely so, artificial. So they had drawn it as if it was being shot through a wide angle yeah. lens. And there's a lot of like, they draw, this is pretty common, but I, I noticed that it was particularly notable in this and it added a lot of sort of artistic flair to the film. Um, the idea that they drew in depth of field, the right. idea that like something will be in focus and the ship behind it is out of focus, yep. which is obviously how it works when you're shooting something with a real camera and not how it necessarily needs to work when stuff's animated. In fact, um, you generally would have to animate it then break out the depth of field so that you blur the background, right? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Well, so that, I guess that's how it was. And and then just another thing, like there's a lot of rain in this movie and there's a lot of times where I swear I noticed that it looked like they'd animated rain hitting the camera lens. They did, yeah, absolutely. And, like, water dripping down the like lens of the camera. pooling on the lens, yeah. obviously doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and so then it got me thinking, like, well, why is it that this movie literally looks like a lot of the time, it seems like it could have just been filmed. So I thought, like, why is it animated? And then I started to notice, it's like a lot of this film has a big emphasis on the gritty, grimy, huge vastness of the city. And there's a lot of detail put into all the technology that's animated in there. Like, a car will have heaps of detail. There's a little clicky pen one of the character uses. It felt like a split second. And it's the most detail-drawn four pen <laughs> ever seen and you can, he's drawn all the mechanisms on this little biro that are characters of like three seconds so there's a lot of detail and emphasis put on like technology and modern society and like the gritty city and then I noticed that it, it, in contrast of that there was almost like a lush gorgeous nature to the way that they drew the natural world and like plants and gardens and animals in the film because they portrayed the city as being quite like Quite vegetated, right? There were heaps, so. heaps of pot plants all around. Yeah, exactly. Often like parks and trees but, and stuff. But they sort of stuck out like a sore thumb yeah. in a way it's like, oh, it's like a little bit of nature struggling to thrive in this big dirty city and the city itself is maybe unnatural which is sort of hinted at later in the film when it sort of shows nature having sort of reclaimed sections of the city that's just what I was about to say this idea of like a natural reclamation of the city itself even like so there's like a there's like a sort of uh spiritual place that the characters go to that's one of the only places in the whole city that has natural garden type elements to it and it's on the top of like an abandoned like a dilapidated skyscraper building. kind of thing. So just the idea that all the natural areas have been sort of relegated outwards and even the bits that are readily accessible like the central parks, it's always raining and the, there are characters that are sick so they can't go outside during it's raining. So just the idea that like the city and sort of modern society has separated the characters from nature was represented by the artistic styles that they were drawn in. Right. Because you, you notice, for example, the cat is really cartoonishly drawn in comparison to all the other... In, in comparison to the, the city that it sits in, it sort of sticks out a bit. It does. And a lot of the sort of shots of the, the, the macro shots of all the little flowers and things dancing in with the rain are really cartoony and sort of gorgeous in relation to the dirty, grimy, more realistic-looking city. Right. And even the characters themselves, like the humans, look a lot more cartoony in comparison to the city. So I just thought it was an interesting way of sort of representing and creating that distinction and using animation in a way that you couldn't do it if it was just film. Like yeah. You wouldn't get that obvious distinction short of like, I don't know, 
really cranking the saturation on the green colors or whatever. Yeah, it's it's a, it, he. It's, you know what I mean, though. Yes, and it's an it's a. I think it's a combination of a bunch of things. I think it's a bunch of stylistic choices. I think it's the culmination of his sort of career pathway of defining himself through this gorgeous background art and simple character animation. So he's refined that character animation where it doesn't look shit anymore because some of his early stuff looked really bad, <laughs> but. Um, instead, it's just quite distinct. There's a, a distinct difference between the characters that inhabit these worlds and the worlds themselves. And he's leveraged that... To affect the story in this one. Exactly. And also um, to show a distinction between like the natural aspects of this world and the anthropogenic aspects of this yeah, world. Exactly. I think yeah, exactly. It, it was so well done. So if that's just like him being like, oh, I can't draw people normal. <laughs> and so I'm going to write a story where they, they stick out, then... It, Definitely was really good, I thought. And so it's the first sort of Japanese style of animation that I've seen like this, where the whole the whole film feels cinematic in a way that Pixar films often do, but in a way right. that often a lot of the Japanese, how Miyazaki stuff I've seen feels a bit like I'm watching a cartoon. I, and maybe I love... that's because they didn't have the advantage of the digital techniques that this guy does. Yeah. But so a big still. part of that is the lighting. So he uses digital lighting and composite techniques, which means like uh, if you look at a Miyazaki film, a lot yeah. of Miyazaki films are uh, clear pieces of plastic with paint put on them, which is called one, – one of those pieces of plastic is called a cell. Yeah. And so you overlay – you probably know this, but some people listening might not. Sure. So you – because you've been to Japan. So you <laughs> overlay cells upon cells upon cells, right? And so it's like cell animation or whatever. And then when you do that – manually you overlay everything on top of itself and then you take a photo of it and that's one frame which is a monumental yeah. amount of effort and, right? you, that, and that's how you can then change one layer while keeping the background the same yeah so if you want to move the background you move the background frame while keeping everything else where it is yeah. right and so it, it creates a sensation of the background moving you get it yeah. in a digital animation program you, you do the same thing, but you do it all digitally, obviously. But then what you can do is you can generate your frame and then you can tell the computer program, right, okay, I've drawn a fluorescent light there. So what I want you to do is I want you to recognize that all of these are surfaces of different textures and depths and whatever. Yeah. And then I want you to realistically light yeah. this animated frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like his lighting, including the light that bounces off all of the rain that's so ubiquitous in this film, just looks incredible. Uh, in yeah. a way that Miyazaki just never has. Right. And can't because you just can't do that, and, and that that's like with a human. The best show off part of this film is like there's a lot of like rain slicked surfaces, loads of reflections happening. Yeah. And I've never seen realistic looking stuff reflections like that. But in this hand-drawn looking art style. Yeah. It's really weird and yeah, I really you, love it. If you compare and like a, this video that I watched had a lot of sort of yeah. side by side. Side by side. And if you compare them, then the Miyazaki backgrounds which are all like hand-painted maybe with actual paint. I'm sure side by side you can see there's a complete difference. Well, they look very stylistically different but the Miyazaki backgrounds tend to be like huge like when you say when I say artwork I mean like painted artwork. Yeah. Looking beautiful backgrounds and I love the art style behind that but these are like uh, uh, Shinkai's films are like computer desktop backgrounds like every frame a painting <laughs> like 
he's because of course the peak of all art belongs on a desktop background. But you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. it, it means that each frame of his films look like it looks like it's had enough attention paid to it I, I to be like, used as a piece of art. I feel like the distinction you're making there is <laughs> not like it's art so good I'd have it on my computer. It's it's more like I feel like the Hayao Miyazaki stuff is like ah oh, it's a good background that I don't really notice. Whereas like with this uh, the Shinke film you're like. Fucking look at that background. It's a background. I could that stare at that independently of anything else. The Miyazaki films look like uh, an artist created them with his hands, but the the Shinkai movies look like something that <laughs> created it with his dude. It, it <laughs> <laughs> Sweet riff. <laughs> Thanks, bro. <laughs> it looks like something that um, <laughs> that he created with his dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you already said good that. one. No, it it looks like something that was generated by like an AI <laughs> after you taught it to to learn really well or or, or whatever. Like <laughs> to learn really well. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know, mate. You derailed me with a dick comment. I lost my train of thought. Have you stayed? Cut that science? shit out. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. Though, like, it's Do so you? <laughs> detailed and so intricate to the point where it's like, why did they spend that much time on that background? It's yeah. only in the film for three seconds, and it's because it totally immerses you in this world. Yeah, that's why it it doesn't it like the the um like Hal's Moving Castle was a um a book first before yeah. it was adapted by Studio Ghibli, right? And it feels like that. It, it feels like this like fantastical... Existing fantasy world. Yeah, f- fantasy world. It doesn't feel real, right? In my opinion. But yeah. these... And you get immersed in them, yeah, sure. But these Shinkai films, like, I, it made me want to, like, live in Tokyo. It made that yeah. city really come to life exactly. in the way that it looked and in the way that all of the characters interacted with it. It was absolutely beautiful and I just don't yeah. think that you could achieve that same level of immersion with... The hand-drawn style. Yeah. yeah. Well, if we merge more into the writing and the sort of story of the film, what we thought about that, um, I definitely agree that there's a lot of realism in this film that does the film a lot of favours. So, so, like, it is, of course, set in the modern day, but then they sort of sprinkle in, like, 5% weird magic shit. So, like... It's a magical realist film. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, it is modern-day Tokyo for all intents and purposes, but they're, like, there are a couple people with some weird magical spiritual powers. Um, but everyone doesn't really believe in it and no one really thinks it's true. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, the, the main premise of the film then is that they sort of find a girl that can pray and make the sun shine and stop the rain. She, Yeah, she can and do it like just for a little bit in a little spot. And yeah, so right. she just kind of goes around like bringing bits of joy to people for a short amount of time. People don't believe it. They're like, oh, I just brought you here because I thought it was good luck. Yeah, it's cute. She's like, Coincidence that it worked. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Under the surface of realism, there's a very sort of syrupy, sweet, I think sort of almost overly sincere commitment to those themes in the film, if you know what I mean. Maybe it's just the tendency for a lot of these Japanese films, at least for us watching them, to come across as sort of overly dramatic and sort of a bit melodramatic. It's so melodramatic. Like, there'll be moments where the characters will be pumping their fists and be like, no, we have to go and do the right thing and save the girl. Yeah. For the good of the soul. Cartoonish. Ka- kind of shit. Yeah, exactly. And and that that was kind of a bit jarring for me. I suppose I suppose it was okay to watch considering the context of the rest of it looked so Japanese. I don't know. How did you find that? It's hard to know how much of that is just cultural difference. Yeah, or just um, like a translation that's weird or whatever. 
Well, I think there's a it bit is, of a weird translations. Uh, so we watched <laughs> it in Japanese with English subs. So we were getting the full voice acted performance of the characters. We just we just obviously couldn't understand that in the native language. But it felt like the performance was very as the director intended or whatever. Um, <laughs> and the performances were still really melodramatic. Like you can hear when a character's voice is like really going for it or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's as I said, it's hard to you know like we've watched fucking Pokemon and like Dragon Ball Z I've and other a bit of anime, yeah. Like, yeah. It felt like despite the realistic art style, the story and the voice acting was still very much like middle of the road anime. Well, Japanese just have a different relationship to these types of things that we do, and so it's hard to understand like who was this pitched at? Like, was this meant to be interpreted by? Because I interpreted that stuff as like it's a very kids movie ish thing, right? Where yeah, you think like I'm so. used to that being in children's cartoons, where it's much more forgivable that it's that melodramatic well, and that it breaks you out of the character that much. I'd be interested to watch some Japanese cinema then to see like I think that this is just because it's an animated thing. I don't think it's like all Japanese yeah, cinema and is, is that, like that. Right, uh, of course, but yeah. is that different? because that type of like uh like almost like pantomimic uh yeah. acting would just look ridiculous if you did it in a live action film and it's still a bit ridiculous but you sort of forgive it when it's in an anime like yeah. this so yeah i mean i'm not sure it's hard to say like what the tone is meant to be versus what we interpret the tone as it's also hard to understand the tone when you're reading it you don't actually understand the language as well like yeah yeah yeah. To, yeah yeah go in speaking or understanding Japanese and know it uh, it's like oh no it does sound a bit kitschy and everyone knows it's a bit kitschy right yeah but yeah it is it is a bit kitschy. and I would assume there's a fair bit of that yeah and um, just e- even the way that they sort of just accept as a given a lot of the sort of magic power of love type stuff that happens yeah, in the film yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a bit like ah oh, come on and it's hard to tell that because it's sort of half a kids film or half like weird Japanese shit yeah so the the moment to moment dialogue was like fine it was very anime yeah it, yeah. it oscillated between like being fine and as you say being like uh, cartoonish and like a bit ridiculous and over the top yeah Um, it had the normal Japanese shit of like gratuitous shots of women sometimes it did play with it a bit because one of the characters was like you're looking at my boobs yeah like called a character on it when it did it but it still did it yeah exactly (laughs) yeah I just sort of watched it and it got like an hour in and finally it was a weird shot of boobs like oh come on Japan yeah like you could have just not done that exactly (laughs) you could have just not on that note like this film is um, super hetero it's just the most like straight movie full stop like the relationship is the most vanilla like teen romance it's a lot of like shit. i only like her because she's the only woman i've ever spoken to it's like pretty pretty normative in like the way that it approaches stuff and i i uh, my understanding i'm speaking from a position of ignorance here but my understanding is that japan's not too great with a bunch of that no, type of stuff so um, I don't I think it's a very woke country. Yeah, anymore. that's just an artifact of the country that it's from, where it's like well, one of these characters or either of these characters, like just he his his character could have been a woman. Easy, 100%. I suppose so. Like it doesn't need to be a hetero relationship. There's nothing special about it, which doesn't make it an inherently bad thing, but it's just like, I don't know, do something else. You know, it was such a yeah. such a tired dynamic between the both of them that that was the least good part of the movie for me, was their relationship, because I just didn't give a fuck whether or not they ended up together or not. It really didn't have any unique aspect of this relationship. It had unique aspects of the characters, but not the relationship that made me yeah. want to want to root for both of them. I definitely think that with a lot of coming-of-age stories, like I feel like this almost was, 
it feels like the director and the writer put a bit of their own personal experience into it. Yeah. I think he said this was like his most personal film. Right, as exactly. Well. So I feel like it feels like it's a lot more from the heart. And therefore, like if you have like a hetero director, they're gonna wanna write a movie with that kind of relationship in it. If only because that's what their experience has been and that's what they want to express. His last movie, Your Name, was about like body swapping between a man and a woman. Right. Um, so I think that actually played with the gender dynamic a little bit more yeah, than right. this one did. And his film, one of his films before that was about like a relationship between an older woman and a younger man yeah. where they meet in a public park to work together on days off. And like it it's a really kind of interesting, unique twist on just like to like a man and a woman being yeah. together so i feel like he's already kind of like extended out the bounds of his like right, exactly. normative relationships a little bit and i suppose this just felt like very like young adult fictiony i feel like it's more the fault of the relationship itself between the characters being underwritten and being a bit bland yeah rather than it being like i wish they were two gay guys or whatever like, sure i guess uh, uh, yeah i'm throwing it out there as a thought like i suppose so yeah. because they were so because the relationship was so like bleh. i think that if it, if it wasn't a hetero relationship and they didn't change anything else about it i think that was the least important part of the reason why the relationship was unappealing yeah you're probably right yeah. i think it was just a boring relationship yeah, right and i was and sitting it, there being like do something yeah and i agree i i think that like that kind of argument reminds me of a lot of the stuff when we were, we were talking... Make it a woman, James Bond. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah, where yeah, it was yeah. like, no, the problem isn't James Bond. The problem is that there aren't more of other movies. Right. Like, more of other movies. Right. It's like, I think this guy, if this guy is hetero, he has the right to make a movie that reflects his own childhood or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. It's more just like, I wish that movie... <laughs> I wish that this movie was better written. <laughs> but I also wish yeah, more, more... I wish their relationship yeah, exactly. was better written and I guess I was just running through a bunch of things that I yeah, felt right, like no, he okay. could have done differently in order to achieve that. Yeah, sure. And uh, you're right, I guess it is a bit of a tokenistic move to just be like, oh, make them both women. Exactly. But yeah. it also feels like if you'd then written that to be two complex female characters, that would have been great. Yeah, exactly. Two complex characters at all would have been great. Something I did yeah. notice in terms of like uh, gender kind of politics and their representation of the film was just the idea of when they find this sunshine girl, the idea that her only function in the film is literally to bring happiness and sunshine... Um, and she only really interacts with, um, like it's she's like the love interest, and she only really interacts with Hodaka, and so she sort of just exists to bring happiness to him, and exists to bring happiness to the world. And I thought, like in terms of representation of women, that was a little bit on the nose, especially since she doesn't really seem to have any of her own interests. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard for me to sort of project onto that, obviously, because I suppose people can want to make people happy if they want. But just the idea that, like, that was that seemed to be the character serving its complete and full purpose was just you make people happy, and that's all that you exist to do. Yeah, it kind of felt a little bit like, oh, yeah. I don't know how much I don't know how much the film really stopped to ask her if that was what she wanted to be doing. There's a bit of a dynamic there that's complicated in terms of age which is very significant much more significant in japan than it is here like the yeah. elder being respected the the idea that like she's the eldest one and so she has to take care of um horika and uh, her younger brother as well yeah um which is sort of the closest that we get to an internal motivation about that but still really doesn't approach the sunshine yeah. girl stuff at exactly. all really because well, they sort of all they're all these sort of these three kids that all kind of runaways yeah they all kind of 
their only motivation is, oh, parents suck. Bleh. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I just thought, I, I thought considering the art style and the rest of the movie, the music as well is really brilliant. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of um, if you've, uh, I know you have, but if if listeners have played uh, the latest Legend of Zelda, <laughs> Breath of the Wild, yeah. they made this big yeah. move away from, or, so uh, most of the games leading up to this series, they've had like games on the Wii and the Wii U. Big um, orchestral stuff. Big full, exactly. Big full console games that have been fully orchestrated. And then what they did on this last one, which is the most advanced game, is that they went back to basically an upright piano for all of the soundtrack. Yeah. So it's very, 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 very minimal and cut back. And a lot of this soundtrack feels a lot like yeah, that. Yeah, right. So there'll be the characters walking around doing whatever the fuck they're doing and it's just a piano yeah. accompanying, which is beautiful. It's very cool. Or sometimes, maybe I'm just imagining this, but I swear there are a few scenes where it started a lot more complexly orchestrated and then it drops away and as the scene kind of fades off to the sort of emotional climax and sort of the scene is kind of fading out, it's gone, the music's dropped down to just being the solo piano again. Yeah. And so like the, the way in which the music kind of crescendos and is orchestrated and then becomes less and less complex as the scene goes on is reflected in the, the way in the scene and the music kind of match up together. Yeah. And there's some, one of my favorite bits of the movie, there were two or three big montage sequences where it really kicked into like an 80s, uh, 70s or 80s style like rock and roll number sung so in Japanese. Dumb, yeah. And so like it's, I said before, it's like one of them sounded like a Tom Petty-ish kind of Bruce Springsteen-ish pastiche in Japanese rock song yeah. as like the the montage for like the conspiracy theorist journalism montage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they were like cycling around town and interviewing priests and yeah. shit. It was playing that. Or he's was like a- cleaning his apartment. Yeah. And there was another one where they're going around uh, with the sunshine girl and doing all the sunshine girl shit. Um, another montage song. And those two rock songs, I'll see if I can find them. <laughs> Whack him at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were good shit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, I, I, I felt like uh, this film immersed me in the rain so much that when I went back to my car after we watched it, I it my brain my brain wouldn't stop thinking that it had been raining. Like I stepped out onto the ground when I parked at home. I stepped out onto the dirt and it was dry, and I was like, "That's not right. It's been it was raining. raining before." Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. I, I think that really like summed up how it felt. Yeah, to watch this movie, and I, I, I'm, I'm pretty much done with like, uh, I, I have a bit to talk about about the end of the movie, okay, and like the general, like, yeah, me too, spoilery stuff, okay, um, but I guess like, have you got a better than worse than? Uh, yeah, I was, I was thinking about it in terms of animated movies that have a surprising amount of depth to them. Um, I watched Howl's Moving Castle recently. I don't know. I kind of, in parts, I kind of enjoyed this film more than I enjoyed Howl's Moving Castle. Um, I think. The art style of each film has its own strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. Cinematically and It's really hard to put one above the other. Really hard. But I think just for me, on the day I watched it, I enjoyed this more than I enjoyed Howl's Moving Castle, which oh. is the only other... This is the only Miyazaki film I've seen. Right. Um, I still think that the best Pixar films are better than this. Okay. So I think that I would say this uh, weathering with you is better than... Howl's Moving Castle and worse than Toy Story 4. Right. I think the Toy Story 4 had a similar number of scenes where I thought like, fuck, look at that shot. Those, though, that animation is beautiful and it had a lot of depth to the characters and the story was really enjoyable and it had a lot of, a lot of strengths in ways that this film didn't. Okay. 
Like I think the characters were a lot more complexly and a lot more competently written in story in Toy Story Four, for example. Yeah. Okay. I have seen a bunch more Studio Ghibli films. All right. Can you hear why I'm wrong? <laughs> no. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle, I've got a real soft spot for. I'm not yeah. sure. I've watched it a bunch, but a few years ago at least now. Yeah. Um, I think I still prefer Howl's Moving Castle to this. It was now, but for it was different slim, reasons. Yeah, it was a slim choice for me. But I yeah. think I like the storyline of Howl's Moving Castle more, but I liked the uh, animation of this film more, and I think it looks better. And also, I love rain as like a motif and a theme. Yeah. And this film does rain so well. So yeah. that was really endearing to me. I liked it. I liked Weathering with You a lot more than I liked Spirited Away. I reckon Spirited Away is fucking overrated. I don't remember. I think, I think, that think I saw it once when I was eight. Or overrated something. ass film. And uh, I, I mean, maybe it's still great, but I think it's overrated. <laughs> so I liked this a lot more than I liked that. I think, in my opinion, Howl's Moving Castle is better than it. For a different <sighs> animated film, um, I don't know. Yeah, no, I won't bother. I think, yeah, that, that'll that sit well. I think that'll give people enough of a range to, to figure well, it out. Mine. Uh, yeah, but both. Like, um, I think it's worth seeing. If you... I, I would say you don't need to go out of your way to see it. And also, this dude's previous film ended up on Netflix, and I think it's fine if you watch it on a decent mobile phone. Yeah. It doesn't need that kind of, like, the fact that you cinema watch, sound. The, the fact that you watch it on your phone, is it, uh, it's ludicrous. To I have me, a like. huge phone, though. <laughs> All right, man. I have a Galaxy S10 Plus for a <laughs> fucking reason. Because when I hold that in front of my eyes, it's the same retinal image size as a cinema screen. <laughs> so, that's why. I think you don't need to watch these films in... As as much as we've talked about the visuals, I think you actually don't need to watch these films in the cinema. No, you can watch it on a TV Particularly because of the... Yeah, like I watched it on my phone. I think that's fine. Yeah. Um, particularly because the sound is great, but it's not... It doesn't need to be super high fidelity. No, no you're right. No, so I, th- like, I think it's... I think you can watch this on any medium and enjoy it. And what I was going to say is his previous film ended up on Netflix, so this one probably will as well. Yeah, and no, I think so, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I have no way of knowing, but yeah, I, I imagine if it does... Well, it's you, the same production company. It would, and it would do justice to the film to watch it that way. Yeah. Alternatively, if you're itching for uh, a similar experience that a lot of people are saying is better than this movie, mm-hmm. uh, but in my opinion is probably less refined and doesn't have the rain in the same way, which is such a strength of this movie <laughs> that I... What's well, so good that yeah, I right. think it genuinely means that like, like I would be less inclined to watch a movie There were so many it. shots in this film that are all animated, of course, where you're like, oh, look at that. Like, 80% of this film yeah, is like, rain. Oh, look at that. That looks so good. So, yeah, that's, that's important enough that I would go to a movie yeah. that was about that. Um, Heavy Rain, one of my favorite video games. What was the movie so, you were recommending? <laughs> uh, his, well, other his, his other one? Your Name, um, which is on Netflix right now. Fuck, so, if you're interested called, in... It's called Oscar? Yeah, nice. <laughs> I was going to make that joke earlier. chose not to. <laughs> um, so I stooped I think, to my level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so, I think that... Um, so I was just crossing a T in my, <laughs> <laughs> in my little notebook. Um, I think that if you're itching for uh, an experience that's probably very similar and inarguably some ways better, um, watch Your Name on Netflix now. <laughs> but this is good, so I'd watch it when it comes out, but don't go out of your way for it. Yeah. So you had three minutes worth of spoilery type shit to say about it? Or what? Yeah. So, okay. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. We've timestamped yep. it for you in the comments. Yep. Fucking spoilers. Yeah. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Okay, so 
the I guess like main twist or complication of this film is that obviously she uh Hina Hina is a sunshine girl which means that she is able to pray for uh, little gaps in the and rain instantly change the weather and instantly change the weather and have the sun shine through which like it, the movie goes on and on about how much that cheers people up and how much that brings joy to people right yeah. fine but it's then revealed that uh, every time she does that it sort of transforms a little part of her a little bit more of her she like has a finite number of uses of the power basically yeah and it, it sort of like changes her body into this like ethereal corporeal form yeah so she's and it's sort of water so she's sort of slowly becoming water the more that she uses this thing and then it's eventually revealed that um she will need and it's foreshadowed earlier in the film but she will need to sacrifice herself completely in order to stop the rain because she can pray for the sun it'll be sunny for like an afternoon but the rain will come back in like one spot and then it'll exactly so she can she only fends it off for a little while and that uses a bit of her yeah. energy, life force or whatever. So like you were saying that the idea that she exists purely for people's enjoyment and not because she has like proper internal motivations that's explored in the film is a bit shitty. I think the fact that she has to be destroyed in order to like fulfill some utilitarian purpose is yeah. a bit shitty. And I asked my gender studies friend. That's where I was getting at, but I didn't want to spoil it earlier. Right. Yeah. Okay. So friend of the show, Gina um, said that she definitely has like experienced this phenomenon before um, of sacrificing herself to stop eternal stop rain. Stop the rain, yeah, yeah. right. Because uh, I felt like in the back of my he head... He just left arms in liquid <laughs> for like three months. Yeah. Right? Um, oh, so there's this scene, it's revealed to the main character um, that that is happening when she sort of like, you think it's going to be, I, I don't know, I thought they were leading up to a sex scene. It's but, Japan, so um, she takes her right, top off. So she like <laughs> slips a shoulder off and it reveals like her like, her like, left shoulder and breast but it's clear and he starts crying and I thought it was so funny that like he was crying because the first time he ever saw a tit (laughs) (laughs) it was transparent he's like no I can't (laughs) see the tit yeah so that sort of ruined that moment (laughs) that's why I was quietly pissing myself during the most most dramatic point of the film you were sympathetically crying with him like yeah bro respect <laughs> I'd also cry if I couldn't <laughs> see the nip uh, yeah um, so like the fact that like she gave a bunch of examples where like yeah it, it's been similar like Atlantis the Lost Empire where like the um, the female character needs to sort of be like blown up in order to um, yeah fulfill a purpose for the rest of, of people and the difference between and like the where that dynamic gets interesting is that like men are generally seen as like vastly more expendable so their their sacrifice means a lot less but it means that like the female sacrifice is sort of elevated to this idealistic thing where it's like oh what a tragedy it is that we lost this perfect form yeah. and this perfect idea we lost this of what beautiful a woman, is. woman right exactly and it it is partially because she's beautiful that she's important it's right? also kind of feels like it's inspired by that sacrificing a virgin to the gods type and, and also motherhood and also childbirth and also a bunch of other yeah. like mimicked in real life cultural phenomena yeah. well the bit um, that I didn't really get into before because I didn't want to spoil it maybe I could have saved the whole thing for this was just the idea that yeah exactly so she's this girl with this magical power that makes everyone happy and as soon as she is no longer able to use that power to make people happy anymore because she's turned too much into water and she's too transparent and she doesn't whatever 
she has to be she has to be sacrificed and be killed. Yeah, I mean, like, I saw that as being like a little bit of an inevitability, but it's just shitty that that's the inevitability. Yeah, right. It's like you've you've expanded your use. You can no longer make people happy. Oh, I see. You're what no you're longer yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the way you were before, so you're losing your form. You're you're valueless. Right. That's and we have to sacrifice you. And I'm not sure if this person was thinking about. I'm not sure if Shinkai was thinking about this in exactly the right way. But considering how like heteronormy all of the rest of the movie is, it was just. Pretty, pretty at the forefront yeah. of my brain. Uh, yeah, it's, for me, it had less to do with the heteronormative aspect of their relationship and more just to do with weird Japanese gender ideals. Well, it just meant that I was that looking for all yeah. that shit because I was like, right, it's a cis-normy relationship. Like, what else is this film what being lazy on? Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, I feel like that my... <sighs> I feel like a lot of that was maybe obviously not the director consciously choosing to write this, but more just like the whole idea of the film seems to have been inspired by gods and goddesses and spiritualism and stuff. And a lot of that stuff... Is rooted in is pretty rooted shitty. In, yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose it's just it's out, obviously it's like thousands of years old, right. and it's legends and myths and that kind of thing, and just the, yeah, the idea of like a goddess and like sacri- sacrificing a whatever, sacrificing and goddesses and that sort of shit. There's a lot of like feminine ideal type stuff yeah, that yeah, pops yeah. up in those kinds yep. of stories. Yeah. Um, so like it didn't ruin the movie for me, but I was definitely yeah. thinking about it for a lot of the film. Yeah. And I think it could have done a lot to just fix that right. and not really sacrifice much of the main storyline. Yeah, I think so. Something I did really like in terms of po- positives we got in the movie, mm. the subtext in that, um, I liked the like the global warming kind of subtle message that this film Yeah, had. so I was going to say, so this film sort of ends, if you're not going to watch it and you're sticking around for the spoilers, the way that this film sort of ends is that actually... Um, so she sacrifices herself and it's sunny. Yeah, and Hodaka wants her back so much that he goes back. He finds his he way. Throws out to himself the magic through sky. the stargate. He, he, he goes to the sky place where she's had to spend eternity to keep it sunny down there. Yeah, and he says, "Actually, I don't care about it being sunny. I just want to be with you." And he, they go back down to Earth together because he makes the cardinal error of when she's like, "Hey, would you want the rain to stop if you could stop it?" He's like, He's like "Yes, yeah, that'd be sweet. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty fucking good. I like the sun a lot." <laughs> and she's like. I'm going to go take a shit. You better not be here when I get back. (laughs) Um, And he's literally like, ah, stupid, stupid, stupid. Fuck, (laughs) fuck. She was talking about killing herself to make it sunny. She Uh, literally kind of was. It's not clear whether or not she would have done it anyway, but it's so funny that she's just like, hey, do you, after I've shown you that like it takes my life force to, <laughs> to, to make this change. Would, would, would you would you want this to be the whole way it is? And he's like, yes. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> I want to go play baseball, are you kidding? Anyway, I'm uh, going to go take a huge dump <laughs> and then fall asleep on the bed. So what he does is he goes up and brings it back. And of course, the film's like, well, if you do do that, it will rain forever. Yeah, and so which is really cool, actually. I think that's the coolest part of the I whole film. I like that it has like a, almost like a shitty bad ending. Yeah, it's just like, okay, fine. That means it forever, will rain forever rain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so then it flashes like three years in the future and half of Tokyo is underwater. Yeah. It's like it's, actual consequences for and, this shit. And it suddenly becomes this like sci-fi dystopia right. where like everyone lives in the top half of all the apartment buildings and like the Tokyo Metro is now a series of Tokyo river boats because all of the streets are now canals between all of the skyscrapers. Yeah. Um, it's really cool shit. I yeah, loved it. and it's not really... It, I, dystopia, I get why you're using that word. In a way, it is. But in you're a right. way, it's also sort of not because they're just sort of living that way, right? And it's fine. And they sort of say... One of the characters says, 
uh, Tokyo's only been land for like the last two hundred years. Before that, it was actually a dock. A so bay. It, they, no, they, was, they said like where where the city was. It was used all to be underwater. underwater anyway. So it's sort of just maybe going back to the way that it was. Which you're right. I, in my mind, I was like, "Oh, cool." And then I was also like, "Is that just saying like, just let global warming happen, bro?" Like, <laughs> worst case in places go underwater that were already underwater before. And so I was a little like, I don't uh, think that's what he was saying. But in my brain, I was like, "No, try and stop the flooding." <laughs> well, no, what you I, idiot. <laughs> what I get out of it is a common thing that I think is often missed with global warming, which is just the idea that like, it's not global warming and climate change. That's the problem. You should phrase it as like human habitat destruction. Yeah, it is. The planet yeah. will ultimately be fine. Yeah. Sure, we've killed the polar bears, but like the, the planet... The Earth is still going to be a celestial body. Like, yeah. The planet will be fine. Life will adapt and change and go on. Yeah. It's the livable conditions for humans that we're destroying. Yeah. So I thought that was like a nice, beautiful, naturalistic, ecological message at the end of the film. Right. Where it was like... Yeah, you can do whatever the fuck you want. The planet's going to be fine. Nature's going to reclaim everything. We've seen nature being this... The, 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 the films like focus on the beauty and the wonder of nature. The greenery, and, like, yeah. The greenery popping up through the cracks in the pavement and stuff throughout the film. And so just the idea of like nature, all this rain finally taking over was this, I think, very beautiful message of like, fuck you. Na- right. Yeah. yeah. It's like, fine, you do your human thing and it's just going to like react yeah. or carry on regardless. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah, nature taking its natural course. Um, yeah. To wipe out the virus that is human. Fuck yeah, bro. Hell Have yeah. you seen The Matrix? <laughs> Four? For what? It does a bunch of 3D shots. This is not spoilers anymore. Yeah. It does a bunch of three dimensional shots where it like rotates around a building or whatever. And every time, it's so funny that every time it does that, you're like, Whoa! which is just like, it's so dumb because well, it's just like, oh, you f- cause it that looks, looks almost like it's real. Because well, it's 2D <laughs> animation for the rest of it. Like yeah. they're flat scenes. And yeah, yeah. Sort of oh, he uses 3D models. I know, but like, it's only ever clear it's a 3D right. model when it does that, yeah. when it pans it's around the It's just funny that like, every movie we watch is in the real world, yeah. and then we see one that's not in the real world, and then for a brief moment, it replicates the yeah. real world, and we're <laughs> like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this film's got depth. No, literally, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> depth of feel. Um, favorite quote uh, is the subtitle of The Noodles, which said... Uh, <laughs> The power of a hundred basket clams. <laughs> <laughs> also, apparently... Um, what was that in relation to again? Uh, oh, yeah. Two-minute fla- noodles. The flavor of the noodle was yeah. the power of a hundred basket clams. Yeah. <laughs> the power. <laughs> I Which I like, I like a lot. <laughs> you had the notebook and I didn't, so I was like, dude, write that down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give me two seconds because this is an interesting fact. The title of the film in Japanese is a pun. Um, it's almost a pun in English. Yeah, in Japanese, it is Tenki no Ko, which is uh, literally translates to Child of Weather, and okay. uh, Tenki Yoho is <laughs> Weather Report in Japanese. So it's actually like a really clever pun That's cool. on the title that absolutely doesn't work in English. <laughs> like weathering, <laughs> weathering with, you. with you. Yeah, it's like weathering the storm, like yeah. enduring with you, I guess, kind of. Being like, with you is a massive slog. Yeah, <laughs> hugely lost in translation <laughs> on the title there. So, um, yeah. yeah. 
I reckon that just about does it. I think so. Go see this film. I don't know if it'll be still in the cinemas by the time this episode's actually come out. Mm. Um, but no, worth seeing, I think. I again, think it'll crop up on Netflix. download it somewhere. I know that it's it's distributed by Madman, and they're usually pretty good at flogging all their anime and DVDs and shit everywhere in Australia. So it's not as if it's going to be hard to find. Yeah. Um, Thank you for joining us for another week on Beef Station. As always, if you have any questions or comments or suggestions for us for stuff you want to do coming up in the future, our email address is beefstationpod at gmail.com. You can come join our Facebook page, which we're slowly trying to get better at updating. We'll update you on all the episodes. You can I think come we've been okay recently. We've been pretty good. Yeah. Uh, haven't updated, haven't, haven't posted about the new episode at all yet. Fuck. You know. <laughs> Fuck. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, you can come join the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash beefstationpod. Give that a like and tell your friends. Oh, by the way, sorry. Just on updating the Facebook page. We had some people say like, oh, I, d- I haven't been listening because you guys haven't posted in a while. Like, I didn't know that new episodes Do you know right. what a podcast if is? If you don't set it to automatically... Like, if you're not subscribed to this podcast, A, fuck you, and B... Do it. What do you mean? Like, what are you doing? Do you manually download every episode? Just if you like, manually download every episode of podcasts you listen to, you're a fucking psychopath. Oh, that's fine, but just you like the, are a psychopath. Or just like if you don't like, I have it on the app, and it'll tell me when anyone. Comes yeah, it just up. automatically downloads one. It tells you if you leave it, and you have to like forage into the darkness and figure out if there's a new fucking just episode like of Beef Station. Be like, it's been about ten days. I yeah. wonder if the Beef Boys what are still going. The fuck is wrong? Are Oscar with and you? Andrew dead? I sure it's hope so. Oh, great. Another episode. When I heard that, <laughs> I was I was like, that's insane. That's insane. <laughs> was it just because I mentioned so it? heard it again recently? No, people told me. So set your dumbass podcast app. Subscribe to Beef Station. Subscribe. I don't give a shit if you listen to this or not. No, but, the streaming, but download the streaming it. Counts. This can happen off air. The streaming counts? Like, the streaming counts to download. Okay, you well, know what? This do both. Download it and then delete it and stream it. We're in our intro. We no longer have to talk about it. <laughs> Fucking tell your friends. And subscribe, you idiot. That's our tagline. <laughs> Subscribe, Dill Holes. <laughs> yeah, that's better. <laughs> Subscribe, Dill Holes. <laughs> I'm Oscar. Andrew. See you later. でしたんだ。なんとかなるさとはとどう